0: Hey everybody, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Mattel. My guest today is the founder of the Weedhead TM and Company. She's also the author of the best-selling workbook, How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry, third edition, and the co-host of She Blaze Podcast. She's a corporate cannabis crossover pioneer and world-renowned cannabis business strategist with experience as an industry educator, senior executive leader, and strategy expert for multiple cannabis businesses, political and municipality leaders, and the media outlets across this country. More recently, she was selected to oversee all regulatory, licensing, compliance, equity, and educational initiatives for the city of Portland, Oregon, Oregon's legal cannabis industry, both medical and adult use. Ashita Dawson. Welcome and thanks so much for being a part of Let's Be Blonde with Montel. Thank you for having me, Montel. <laughs> Absolutely. And let's talk a little bit. Let's start a little bit. You have a really impressive resume, but let's start a little bit about talking about your background. I mean, where did you grow up? Um,
1: I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Um so I grew up in Brooklyn and, and then went to college and uh, grad school in New Jersey.
0: Ah, okay. And you graduated from college. What's your degree
1: in? My degree is in molecular biology. Um,
2: (laughs) You went to Princeton undergrad, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, I went to Princeton for molecular biology. And at the time I wanted to be a doctor. Um, But I think, you know, life has its way of uh, putting us through a lot of, uh, it just turns in order for us to get to the right spot. And I finally feel like I'm in the right spot.
0: Sure, but I mean, again, molecular biologists, I get why cannabis would be interesting from a biological standpoint or a biologist standpoint, but what's your connection to cannabis to begin with? Well, um,
1: I have early signs of MS. Um, You're actually one of the first um, individuals that um, made me start to look at cannabis in a different way. You and my mom. Unfortunately, my mom is no longer with us. And she when she passed away, I really felt uh, a strong desire to just kind of um, figure out what was going wrong with my body and um, how I can best heal it. Um, and really diving into the endocannabinoid system and the benefits of cannabis as medicine has really uh, fueled a lot of my mission. Um, since I started in the industry so I'm a patient first
0: were you were you officially diagnosed with ms
1: um yes and no so um i spent I've spent the last ten years and you probably are familiar with it just not knowing what's going on and doctors not sure whether it's lupus or whether it's ms i kept being told um one or the other and really finding a lot of challenges finding the right doctor for me i'm about five years ago i kind of i feel like i went off the grid because i went into the cannabis space to really search for just ways to improve my health on my own Um, and then more recently i I found a physician who understands the endocannabinoid system and uh, that diagnosis came where it's just early signs we believe it's reversible but i deal with with it every day. And, um, you know, I can definitely see the progression in the last few years as well.
0: And you now are, are you, are you see doctors on the East Coast, West Coast?
1: Both. But my preferred right now are some of the doctors that I've met in Oregon.
0: Okay. I, um, you know, uh, offline, I'll give you the name of a doctor who's a really unbelievable one in New York that I've seen for several years who could probably at least get you out of that don't know, but yes or no kind of category because that's really, really. I think so many people who are on that MS journey go through what you're going through for 10 years where you know it can't decide is it, is it not? If you had MRIs and those things,
1: mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah, and they'll
0: be able to determine, right.
1: Yes. And, you know, in that way, it's somewhat good because it's like, okay, it's not bad enough that we're seeing anything, but sometimes I do feel challenged. My last time on the East Coast, I went to the emergency room and, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. I don't take that lightly, but I really was not helped. Um, My intercostal muscles, the muscles in between my ribs were just spazzing. It felt like I was getting uh, uh, hugged by a bear and, you know, squeezing the life out of me, but there was nothing that they could find wrong with me by their tests. That's the frustration Mm -hmm of, I think, the quote-unquote allopathic or Western medicine. Um, And, of course, we didn't have a real conversation about the endocannabinoid system, and one person Googled me, and so that made it a little bit of a better conversation. But generally, it's been a frustration, and I found some relief in real sense um, in the cannabis space.
0: And then once you found relief, you decided, what, you want to get in this as a business to help share what you've learned with others?
1: I think my first um, conference, you were a keynote. I, I, I definitely feel that I have to just kind of give you props for being an inspiration in the space. Oh, um, but for me, utilizing my skills to better tell the story, um, everything was still very um, uh, 18 to 25, maybe white male driven in its positioning. Um, but the data when I was working in the markets showing fastest growing legal users or women, primarily women of color, for these autoimmune issues and just being a person who was, you know, nearly 40 and now over 40, I just knew that the positioning was um, not getting across that cannabis is medicine first and always. So this is just that nexus of my business skill set paired with the molecular biology background and the experience of being a frustrated patient on a journey.
0: So when you first jumped in, what did you do? You came in as a consultant to cannabis businesses. So give me a little bit of your background of, of how this has developed out to where you are today. Basically, you now are in charge of the entire cannabis industry in Portland, Oregon, are you not? In Oregon. Yes. Um, it's been a journey. I mean, I started
1: very much just doing what I did for big companies like Target and Victoria's Secret. I was a business strategist, supply chain um, operations specialist, um, anything that was involving manufactured goods and retail, which is a really big part of the cannabis space. Um, wait, I- hold on a hold second.
0: Hold on, hold on, hold on. So wait, you get out of college with a degree in molecular biology and go to work for Victoria's Secret's?
1: Well, that was after my MBA at Rutgers. So I uh, I got out of college and I wanted to go to medical school, but I started with United Way. So I've always been just, I think, mission driven. Um, if the work doesn't speak to me, if especially given how hard we work, it's been hard to jump right in. And so I didn't use my science degree right away. I used um, just my general skill set, project management, and um, understanding of the digital space before most people understood the digital space. Um, right. But yeah, no, I, I winded up uh, after business school going to Target and there are some things at Target that I'm responsible for, like the natural hair space and the plus size uh, brand. And then I got kind of poached, if you will, to lead uh, the beauty and sports business for Victoria's Secret. And, um, you know, I feel I was on a very, very good corporate trajectory, but then my mom passed and it kind of just snaps you back into reality. You know, um, and it, it made me want to deal with what I wasn't dealing with, which was that I was sick and I didn't know why and I didn't have it under control.
0: Got it. And so when you transition over into the industry, did you transition over first in a dispensary and a grow? I mean, how, what was that transition like and where did you start off at?
1: I started in the Arizona market where I became a patient first. I, I kind of became a refugee from the New York area. I wanted to be able to utilize cannabis legally and not you know, necessarily have to shop in the illegal or legacy market. It just felt too much fear and stress with that. Um, so Arizona is where I became a patient and very quickly got clients within the dispensary space because that's retail. And when you have Target as your background and that makes it a little bit easier. But eventually over time, my contract's, Started to span where I was working with Native American tribes, trying to develop, um, you know, uh, hemp innovations. Understanding cannabis as a genus and understanding the cannabinoids as molecules gave me an advantage, and I was sort of leapfrogging in terms of uh, people who were more uh, advocates in the space, but didn't necessarily know as much of the science, um, but still worked in the space. If that makes sense.
0: Gotcha. And so you first started helping people develop out there their paradigms for whatever, their dispensary, and for brands. And then what took you to Portland, Oregon? Really the desire to demonstrate
1: what we're not demonstrating. So you know the history. It's been legal. For 25 years, we leapfrogged the health professionals in the California market. Um, a lot of adult use markets started without any equity. I'm from Brooklyn. It's hard to work in a space. And then, you know, before it legalized in New York, you know, I was part of that uh, journey. But before it was, people were still being arrested, largely from my neighborhood. So the dichot-
0: you were still getting arrested right now.
1: Yes, absolutely, too. I will give in you. In California and Oregon. <laughs> Yes. A hundred percent. Um, And it was just jarring for me and it didn't sit well in my spirit. And I saw a bigger opportunity um, to show the utilization of cannabis as a tool to repair what it actually had done um, through its criminalization, but also to to move us forward and to drive us towards health equity. Um, And that has been why I've been more involved in policy. And over time, testifying helped um, becoming more of a policy advisor to jurisdictions and a consultant to governments it became very clear to me that we didn't necessarily have the right leaders regulating. We still come over with an enforcement frame of mind versus regulator that actually says she's a patient. I think I'm the first. Um, so, I, you know, a lot of people, they, they want to oversee it, but they don't use it. That doesn't make sense. And then the second is I have a scientific background. And so it's very hard for me to accept nonsense in the regulatory policies if it doesn't fit the science.
0: Gotcha. Okay. so now what, what has been, well, okay. So again, you went to Portland, but you didn't jump right into Portland and become the head of overseeing the entire industry. So what was your transition like in, in Oregon? Well, um, again, mostly working
1: with Native American tribes, but finding um, a coalition and advocacy. I joined the Oregon Cannabis Commission subcommittee on patient equity and governance frameworking, and I got more insight into what was happening on the ground. Once the role opened up, I had already been at that point an author writing a book for people to cross over into the space and had built enough of a name for myself on the testimony and the policy work I'd done across the country that I, I got into the short list. And I was surprised, but they selected me and it's been over a year and it's been a journey, but I'm learning so much about what we can do better from the government side of things.
0: And you've said it a couple of times that, you know, you worked on equity, but, you know, that term equity is, is I, I almost, I, I'll say it this way, is almost a made up word, especially when you look at it around the country. Um, you know, that. it means one thing in Portland, it means another thing in, in Arizona, it means another thing in Colorado and Nevada and Florida, you know, it just means nothing in some ways. And okay. in other ways, it means everything, to applications, but- it means nothing once the application has been approved. You know what I mean? I'm just really thrown by this whole term equity. So tell me a little bit from your perspective, what does that mean? And do you think we are trying or even really trying to head into a situation where we will finally see true equity in this across the country? I mean, you know, I think the only thing equitable about it right now is that, you know, make sure that African-Americans and people of color are still the ones that get arrested you know, mm-hmm. across the country. I mean, we have a president, a vice president of the United States who as attorney general in her state was responsible for the arrest of more people than anybody before her,
2: mm-hmm. Cannabis,
0: mm-hmm. who then turns around and says, I'm running to help change the rules about cannabis and hasn't done a damn thing since she's been in office. So what does equity mean to you? well
1: i'm with you i'm i was ju-
0: I, I have been just as frustrated about the lack
1: of real understanding so I'll start by the fact that um we use the term social equity a lot and it's it's really becoming bastardized and uh, it, it's becoming mm. wow mhm. Mm-hmm. Right. ago, is the reason we keep messing up social equity in cannabis is because in our country we don't really know what social equity looks like. Definitely not as Black and Brown people because we've never really seen fairness in policy and regulations across the board
2: or I mean, anything.
1: Yes, on anything. And that also made me realize that while cannabis is certainly a very obvious uh, place to start the conversation because it was so inequitable in the racial disparities of our arrests, um, it isn't the only place we need this. Um, I'm seeing even as a government official that we need across the board, it should be ubiquitous. So for us um, as- right,
0: But but, but now it should be it should ubiquitous, be. but You know, we look at a nation right now that that can't even figure out social equity within one demographic—Caucasians alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost like you know, it's that that apple that's uh, way out there on a stick in front of a dog chasing it, and you never get to bite. Yes. (laughs) Yes, <laughs>
1: but uh, I want to, you know, I got. I want to take a step back because one of the things that I am uh, founder and co-founder with Dr. Rachel Knox, um, one of the doctors from Oregon that I was speaking about, the medical Her name doctor. just
0: came up a second time, right? Yeah. I just, I just interviewed uh, uh, Jim Belushi. Oh um, yes, he's in New the market. Population. And uh, Jim was talking about that doctor. So I'm sorry, I just threw deep, deep It's bark.
1: important. They, they're they actually a family of doctors. Uh, mom, dad, and we call them Dr. Mom, Dr. Dad, but Dr. Janice Knox, Dr. David Knox, Dr. Jessica Knox, and Dr. Rachel Knox. And they're a family of doctors, MDs, endocannabinologists. And so Dr. Rachel and I co-founded Cannabis Health Equity Movement because, to your point, we haven't been satisfied with this definition of equity. And for us, we see social equity as one of four pillars of total health equity, the other three being economic equity, environmental equity, and human equity, and that social equity is really meant to facilitate access to those things in an impartial way um, through our regulations being fair and our policies being um, equitable. And, and so instead of using social equity as this destination, this program, it's really a vehicle, it's a tool. And so for us, social equity is a vehicle, but health equity is our destination, and we're using policy to get there. But you've got to, you know, we've got to expand the view of it. And I agree, as we go across the country, really talking about this, it is a very shallow um, perspective on equity. A lot of people just see it as equity and licensing. And that's one aspect. But what about the cannabis tax revenue? How is that being uh, really invested into communities for a return on equity investment? Um, And that hasn't been happening until recently.
0: And when you're talking about health equity, that's never happened in America. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know
1: how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. No, but that's also because we're not defining it well. I hear a lot of people talk about health equity and they're really focused on that human equity, one pillar for us, specifically um, equity in health care. And I think that that's conflating what we're trying to do And the human equity. We want to drive physical, mental, and spiritual fitness. Uh, health is really a description of, of how well something is doing. It isn't... What, what, what our goal is. And I think, again, pairing with doctors and me being someone who has a science background, it's been us stewarding this new definition of health equity and how we use cannabis to achieve it.
0: Yeah, I mean, here in the United States, we have, so we claim to have a healthcare system, but we really only have a sick care system. One thousand. That only, concent- only concentrates on sickness and not remedying sickness, but just trying to figure out how much money you can make off a of sickness.
1: It's shameful, actually, and I, I definitely encourage you to check out our uh, Association for Cannabis Health Equity and Medicine. It's actually the first um, health professionals' association for BIPOC's, uh health professionals who are interested in cannabinoid mes- medicine and the endocannabinoid system, because we don't learn about it in, in our, our medical schools in the United States and abroad. No one's learning about the endocannabinoid system, and yet it drives so much.
0: Yeah, very few uh, colleges across the country. I think a few of them has now started to incorporate the endocannabinoid system, but it's very few and far between, but they're coming. Um, how do you think we get we can speed this up? See, I, I, I have been, you know, very disappointed myself. You know, I've been involved in this industry since 2000,
2: mm-hmm. not,
0: not since 2016, 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Everybody jumped on board the cold rush. I got involved in this back in 2000 when I got, you know, diagnosed with MS trying to make sure that patients like me would have access to efficacious medication. And that was my whole objective when I first got involved. But when I look back at that, I mean, I, I look at a, a nation where, you know, we pay lip service to, you know, our support of cannabis. There, there are more legislators who have passed bills to allow cannabis in their states who are trying their best to thwart it. its distribution and dissemination and its growth. They only thought, you know, let's pass it because we can get a couple bucks out of this. But, you know, they don't support the initiative as a whole. Um, and part of that, I think, has been because this industry. This industry is as has turned into a B2B industry in a sense. Um, B2B being business to business industry rather than business to consumer. We don't even pay attention to educating our consumers or the viability of this as a medication. So I think some of the blame that goes into what legislators and administrators are doing with some of these crazy rules and regulations that they put forth to thwart this industry is because we as the members of the industry haven't done enough to push back. What do you think? I agree
1: 100%, and I think that that's why we started the Cannabis Health Equity Movement. It's a coalition uh, movement, and it really is uh, trying to pair what we know needs to happen in government in order for this to make sense. Again, that's the fairness and regulations and policy paired with what is happening in the community. That's our institutions and universities, community education, especially for Black and brown folks. Um, those are people, I've talked to the CBC, they can be sometimes the most reluctant because we've had had the most damage to our communities. They don't want to talk about it. But once we explain and people get that they themselves can receive some benefit as a patient um, because of the medicinal, inherent medicinal value of cannabis, it becomes a different conversation. The last part we need to pair in is business. So we do have private businesses that are uh, lobbying against what is in the best interest of patients. Um, I look at the Minnesota market where they wanted to keep it limited in licensing and they definitely limited their amount of ability to grow all three licenses wind up bankrupt. The reality is that they had a homogenous product all you know, oil, no flour, all of that has to do with uh, the upsell and uh, more money as opposed to what's actually in the best interest of the consumer. And then I go back to my time at Target and Victoria's Secret. We were not selling to America, you know, and outselling, you know, other places, not thinking about the best interest of the consumer. So I've been trying on the business side to explain, if you don't get this right, you're not going to get people to transition from the legacy market to the legal market, as is most people still trust their plug more than they trust a dispenser. And on the government side, if you don't allow integration of the legacy market, if you don't take down some of this stigma and do a public education campaign, which has not been done in any of these states, we'll never see conversion as you plan for this new revenue. Right. So it's it's been an interesting I'm a strategist. so I'm I'm putting together the Rubik's Cube like this is how it's supposed to work. I've gotten more. Out of working with the Native American tribes because they own everything, government, community, and business, and being able to create ecosystem where it makes sense. We've already done a lot of chopping up in America, so I look at the you know African continent as an opportunity as well because we have whole countries that want to build their GDP based on uh, cannabis innovations and knowing that it's medicine.
0: I've recently got involved with a, a company out of Lesotho that is a company, well, a company out of the United States that's now in Lesotho that. Uh, Will, if uh, they stay on the path that they're on, could possibly be one of the largest international cannabis companies in the world because they have a million acres under uh, contract right now uh, to be able to grow with. But you know, again, you know, part of what's going on in the African continent is that you've got four countries that have legalized it, but they don't allow the sale of it in their own country. Yep. So they're they're legalizing so they're trying to take advantage of exportation rather than understanding. The true viability of the product. I, I'm working with them uh, right now, trying to convince them to recognize, you know, the fact that you know hemp seed is probably one of the highest protein laden seeds on the planet. And you know, if you got a million acres in one country that could grow a half a million acres of hemp seed, you could feed that continent
2: mm-hmm.
0: using just hemp seeds alone in some sort of a you know energy bar. Yeah, um, because that's viable you know, protein product that forget about, you know, THC and moving that part forward. Just let's talk about feeding the nation or feeding the continent that is having problems with food. And we're all going to be faced with. Like we're seeing what's going to happen in the southwest of the United States with, you know, the the redistribution of, you know, a dwindling resource of water, Mm-hmm. You no, know, we're looking at the Colorado River drying up right now. You've got states from New Mexico to California to Arizona and Colorado. You know, they're all going to be fighting over water that they're not going to have, be able to take a piece of anymore. Um, you know, uh, that's going to impact, I think, the cannabis industry in a big way, especially we have so many of the farms in Southern <coughs> California, New Mexico, Arizona, that are going to actually be put on the back burner Uh, When it comes to water distribution, right? Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, But at the same time, then there's also the innovation that can happen um, with soil remediation and um, being able to add biodiversity. Uh, so that maybe we're using and build uh, sorry cultivating crops that, uh, crops that are actually not using as much water. I think that there's a lot of innovation that will help us adapt to what we're seeing as um, deficiencies now, but in the future, um, I, I still look at hemp, for example, as the long money or more the fiber opportunities there. Um, oh come on, I mean, we're
0: not we're not even. I think this <laughs> industry this industry is is like the Wright brothers pushing that wooden plane down a hill. Um, you know we still have generations that would be to come before we even get to a jet aircraft, so there is plenty of opportunity for growth in the hemp industry, especially when we know now that there's probably something close to twenty five hundred different applications that you can use hemp for mm-hmm. yeah, and exactly. we 're barely scratching the surface i mean I think you know i i 've read recently about you know the fact that you know the the bark of a hemp plant and a cannabis plant can be you know burned down to a por- that it creates a substance that's that's more um, viable for electrical storage than graphene. So we could be making some of our lithium batteries out of the byproduct that we throw away from hemp. And that's just that's just one of a my myriad from hempcrete to clothing to food, you name it. Before we even get into the whole idea of cannabis, right. And- um, that's what I
1: feel like we leapfrogged. Um, and it's just been a really interesting journey. But I think we're getting a little bit more headway. I think uh, one of the things that I'm working on on the government side is no longer having this you know, artificial bifurcation in the regulatory framework. So basically, you you can be a hemp operator, and that's one framework. You can be uh, medical operators, another, and then adult use. And it's still all one genus, uh, and maybe the end use is different, you know, whether you're growing for fiber or grain or for flowers, which is where the cannabinoids are abundant it should be regulated based on that Um, because a lot of confusion. Now we have Delta eight. I love having these conversations about the new molecules and how we're going to be governing them because, you know, it it does illuminate that we're, we're kind of taking a nonsensical approach. We're literally governing the plant by molecule at this point. And
0: some of that is is this industry doing a disservice to itself. One thousand percent. I mean, I, you know, I'm so sorry. It's like, uh, there's a new THCO. It's out there that they figured out that they can actually process uh, out of a hemp plant. Have you heard about this yet? I,
1: I've heard of the Delta Eight. That's processed. No, out my
0: okay. you, you need to now to take a There's step. There's a new, the new synthetic THC. The <laughs> new synthetic THC THC O, which is supposedly, you know, THC dash O. Okay. Which is supposedly not zero, but dash O, mm-hmm. which is supposedly three times more powerful than. T H C, which is only going to help to scare the regulators into coming down on an industry that didn't need to have you come down on to begin with. We can't be satisfied with producing a product that is a plant. I mean, you know, a nature-grown, plant-based medication that you know was created for a reason. I believe very, very strongly in you know, science, you know, and I believe in Albert Einstein's theory of relativity for every, op- for every action, is an equal and opposite reaction. Well, that plant was put on this planet because it was here to be the opposite to so many illnesses.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Man didn't have to step in and now synthesize that. That's the same way how stupid we were when we started synthesizing Marinol back in the mm-hmm. late seventies and eighties. We found a product that didn't have any value for anything. And now for us to, you know, just play God and synthesize out another extract that's only going to when consumed send some people right to the hospital. Yes. And then that brings the regulators down on people's heads for no reason. Why can't you be satisfied? We haven't even gotten out of hemp yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, again, we're those Wright brothers pushing that wooden hill that that wooden plane down a hill. If they had a jet engine and they had stuck on that thing, you know, mankind would have probably fought flight. Right? (laughs) you're
1: probably right I mean we are I I talk a lot on my social media around the frustration I have with the cannabis space uh, the lexicon that we use how stubborn people are but then also the fact that we allow the capitalism to be the driver as opposed to the, the medicine or the nutritional or the agricultural or the industrial um, and and all of those will have a capitalistic benefit but it's the approach um, I don't agree with synthetically making anything at this point I mean I rarely Use things that are even cannabinoid isolates, unless it's going to be a topical. Just myself personally, as a patient, I right. want the whole plant, and I want my body to be able to process it and get rid of whatever it doesn't need on its own, without it being, um, you know, sort of over and inundated with an isolated molecule.
0: Yeah, um, really right. Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah. I, I have I have fared well with formula. I I like to be able to formulate. I think that you know the plant. As it's grown, was perfect in nature for just what it was there for. I, mm-hmm. Who knows? I know, you know, a couple thousand years ago, when we were little rodents running around on the savannah, we probably ran and sought out the cannabis plant to settle <laughs> our stomachs, mm-hmm. and of course, because we know that it helps keep the body, keep the, the as mammals, it keeps all of our cells in a homeostatic position.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, but I think that as we have done more research and now we're starting to see those things that are naturally occurring in the plant like CBG that it mm-hmm. on a plant six weeks old and then it, it goes away and turns into THC and CBD. we might recognize just like we recognize value in stem cells if you kind of looked at CBG as the stem cell cannabinoid because mm-hmm. it turns out other ones, maybe there could be some benefit if I increase that level of CBG, And I do so if I have to do so by putting it in a formulation, you know, taking it from 0.002% in the full grown plant to 0.01%, putting a little bit back in. how does that affect the THC molecule and the CBD molecule and its variance Mm
2: -hmm.
0: when it's fully grown? Maybe that might actually reinforce it a little bit. So that's why I kind of I don't I don't mind isolates as much as if you put them back together in formulations, but isolates by themselves, I say, are of no value. I mean, for me, medically, personally. (laughs) I,
1: I love where you're, you know, you're thinking, I I I feel the same way that all of the cannabinoids are my babies. I'm a molecular biologist. Right. Of course, I love them. Yeah. And we we do a disservice where we isolate just CBD or just yeah. THC um, because we are missing the minor cannabinoids and I've, those no minors if, can be major, right?
0: Absolutely. No ifs, Sandra, but I I think there's a recent uh, peer review study document that came out, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, talking about the fact that over the course of the last year through COVID, mm-hmm. you know, we have had probably 20, anywhere from 12 to 20 studies going on around the globe, 12 of which have now been written about and peer-reviewed and put out that have now identified the fact that, you know, there may be some value in CBDV, mm-hmm. the variant form, when it comes to anybody on a spectrum disease. They've been mm-hmm. doing model modeling, uh, 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 animal models and testing and showing communic- communicable or the communication ability between between mice improves if you put CBDV in their diet. Mm-hmm. And that same, you know, uh, uh, increase in communication with mice that have been, you know, been manipulated to show as if they're somewhere on that spectrum that may say have the same kind of effect in humans. Um there are some clinical trials that are starting right now in humans and you know so I think you 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 nailed it. I think that again we are just scratching the surface when it look when we look at this plant. we know that you know depending on who you read what there's in between you know 200 and 250 cannabinoids that haven't mm-hmm. that, are there, that have mm-hmm. already been identified. So we know that they're there so now let's start looking at what each individual one does. It's just like um you know, I often talk about it like, um, you know, you can play Tchaikovsky all day long <laughs> with an orchestra. If you take, you know, let's say the trumpets out. It'll sound like Tchaikovsky, but it ain't going to be Tchaikovsky. <laughs> right. You had the horns playing back there in that background. Right. You know, though you had a flute play that or you had a clarinet play that. That's not Tchaikovsky. Right. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, so you know, that's. That's my kind of take on it. I think that, you know, we want to play that orchestra effect. But sometimes, you know, you add a little extra drums and put an electric bass in there. and Now you've got, you know, Tchaikovsky on steroids. Mm -hmm. That might be good for me sometime.
1: Right.
2: Not all the time.
1: And there's also that. Like, um, my, my family makes fun of me because I, I really don't consume cannabis at all the same anymore. Um, there's very little social. Um, it has replaced my Advil's and, uh, uh, you know, ibuprofen and all of those things for what I need. And it depends on the day. Some people are like, well, what do you consume? And it really depends on what I'm going to do. Like, I just got off of a five hour flight. That is cocktail, which is really mostly a flour. I prefer to work with flour. I'm combining hemp flour with um, high THC and or marijuana flour really so that I could get the, the best of both worlds, in my opinion. But more importantly, I think it comes down to the terpenes for me because we're, we're talking about cannabinoids, but then those modulators and the terpenes, those are, I mean, that take the whole game to another level.
0: No, six, years ago, six years ago, I started formulating <laughs> products that were based on THC, CBD, and terpene mixtures together in a vape pen. That's what I was telling you about. It's like mm-hmm. I, I, I've i been a big believer of this for the last 10 years, and that's where, again, this industry has done itself its own, its own disservice because, you know, we try to make a buck by getting the fastest product to market that we can get out there that you can make money off of without slowing down for a second and recognizing it. I mean, like I put together some a product line that is. CBD, 95% by volume Mm -hmm. THC with terpenes and flavonoids in it. Well, that works for me sometimes. Mm -hmm. Then there's other times that I want to use, you know, a product that's 25% THC and 75% CBD by volume with terpenes. Mm-hmm. And I've also switched those terpenes up depending on what that formulation is, because, you know, there I have a, a CBD product that's been in the marketplace that's got proprietary CBD or a, uh, sorry, a terpene profile in there that I have separate terpenes for my alert and morning time and separate ones for my evening time. Yep. Um, and depending on how I feel, because I'm the only one who knows what, how to better titrate myself than anybody else.
1: You were the first person I heard say that, and I think. Um, so, I mean, I've only been in the industry since two thousand sixteen, and of course, I again, like I said, I know you initially. You're drawing. Uh, the attention for me because I was dealing with similar ailments and your scientific approach. Um, You may not remember, but I'll send you a picture after, but I went to, in my first MJ BizCon and you had a very invite only um, reveal of the product line. It was the first time I was hearing about formulation in the space. And that to me was also, again, very inspirational because exactly what I do with beauty at Victoria's Secret, we're formulating and it's from plant science at that. It's very, very similar processes and so it got me from the dispensary and the grow or the pot farm if you will in quotes to recognizing that there's a lot of the same manufacturing processes in our consumer packaged goods that we take in now that were, you know, not being applied appropriately to the cannabis space. So I thank you for that because it did start that wave of people trying to now, you know, do more in the way of formulation, as opposed to here's a a isolated THC, uh, you know, ready for you to dab, which again, no issue with dabbing, but there needs to be more in this market. It's not just that.
0: And see, I mean, and, and, and even in that space, in the dabbing space, I mean, again, you know, you as a, a a you know molecular biologist would understand no one has figured out yet whether or not there is a titration level to our endocannabinoid system or is thirty eight percent better than seventy to 12 percent better than than two percent better mm-hmm. than eight percent who knows i mean I, I I don't buy this idea that I have to have the highest THC level in the world to elicit a response that I need. right? And when I start messing around with that, then I might be a listening response in some people that they don't need either. So, yeah. you know, we got to calm down a little bit, I think, with this whole idea. And that's, that's where I think that the industry has done itself a disservice, especially during a time over the course of the last year and a half, when we could have been doing so much more to educate our consumers. That's where I think the difference is going to come in this industry. When we finally get an educated consumer base, more educated than the business base, because they're going to drive and demand. It's the same reason why. Why does the pharmaceutical industry put so many commercials on television? They put the commercials on television so that they can educate the consumer. The consumer can go into the doctor and say, have you heard about this? Can you get me that? Then the doctor reaches out to the pharmaceutical company, makes a deal so that he gets a kickback on that. (laughs) But at least he's providing the patient with a product that the patient is asked for and that they need rather than a product that the pharmaceutical industry gave them to push on the patient. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm hoping that this industry finally, you know, realizes that there's enough given three or four years, this is going to be a multi-trillion dollar industry. There's enough money in this for everybody. Damn. Can't we work together?
1: Ideally. Um, and I'll also point out that we're still leaving out a big chunk of the genus because we have the hemp side, which is less than 0.3% THC. And then on the high THC side, I i mean, one of my favorite uh, strains or cultivars is Acapulco gold. and only has mm-hmm. about 12% <laughs> THC in it, but it has a, a little bit more CBD. There is that between 0.3% and 12% uh, variety of, you know, uh, genetics that we're not seeing. We don't know how the plant would be put together in those places because nobody's growing it.
0: Well, you know, but, and why? Because America, a lot of people don't recognize the fact that during the late 60s, early 70s, and through the 70s, we in America, especially in the Humboldt County area, the Northern California area, tried our best to grow the CBD out of the plant. hmm we were growing seeds and cultivars that we were trying to get rid of CBD back then.
2: Mm-hmm. Now
0: they're rushing to try to get it back in and they're messing with a plant that they should have never messed with. The beginning. Well, I can remember, you know, I'm, I'm considerably older than you, but, you know, um, you know, I can remember in my high school days. I still look back at, at some days in, in high school. You know, I remember being under the bleachers and could never imagine that I could ever get any higher. <laughs> and, back then, and back then, those plants probably had no greater amount of THC than about 9 to 12% THC. Mm-hmm. And I, I have never achieved the same euphoria that I achieved back then. It wasn't because it was some of my first euphorias. No. I can literally remember, you know, being under the bleachers and at 4 o'clock in the morning and realizing that I had been under that bleacher since 11 o'clock oh. that night. And... From, you know, two or three hits off of a single joint and being like completely blown away and not achieving that until I found some cultivars recently, maybe the 24, 25% and having, you know, a fairly decent, you know, euphoria, but thinking to myself, geez, but 20 years ago, I only used half this the of THC and got that same response. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? hmm yeah, I, I wonder
1: then about what the rest of the chemical um, profile was, right? For right. so me, I, I have found that the higher the THC sometimes, especially certain markets like in Nevada, oh my gosh, they'll have such high THC, but then they're lacking terpenes. At all and to me that actually if you understand how the receptors work in our body the terpenes are uh they're part of that entourage they're determining right. whether or not it's going it's going down at the cell wall <laughs> or right. you know what I mean the cell membrane it just uh, to me I think it's interesting that we we we've kind of again to your point edited out um in in search of this rush this green rush and I'm hoping that we'll get ourselves back to where we need to be but it does help if we weren't artificially stopping the potential with the way hemp is designated that's a man-made designation that's not right. scientific at all it's arbitrary
0: and capricious of the way they came up with 0.003
1: it's like, okay, where do we come from? And then the fact is we also are wasting in Indiana. I was just w- reporting on this in our podcast that they're burning hot hemp. That's anything over the 0.3%. And hemp is, could be, I mean, they certainly could be remediated. It, it can be, and it could be used, like you said, for various other things. So why not use it for that just because of THC? I think um, we've lost sight of the potential here and hopefully we get it back I wrote to the Office of National Drug Control Policy recently because they asked for that um, feedback. And I was calling out some of this, like the inconsistency between wanting to support people and, you know, heal people, but then not wanting to at least learn the science. Because now we've got too many countries. Like Israel is like the truth and they're doing so much scientific research around this and we're just turning a blind eye.
0: they are leading (laughs) the way. And, 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 you know, the rest of the world. I mean, you know, the fact that China just... Invested so much money in hemp farms and they're going to start rolling out product that I I would never use anything from China myself. However, they're going to start, you know, rolling out products around the world that is going to give people a framework to see if they can copy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would rather we lead the way where we're the ones who technically have the ability to do that. Tell us a little bit about, you know, I'm going to run out of time real quick with you, but tell me a little bit about the nonprofit Chem Alliance that you're working with.
1: So that's the Cannabis Health Equity Movement and Chem mm-hmm. Alliance is our 501c3. The movement itself is a coalition of uh, BIPOC experts across medicine, regulation, law, policy, uh, operations on the ground, see the solution. And it really was just born out of frustration. We are here to educate, of course, to advocate, of course, and to demonstrate, more importantly, what can be done when we use cannabis as that root solution for achieving health equity. Chem Alliance is where we really do a lot of our community education, and we've created our esteemed curriculum, which is agronomy, science, technology, engineering, arts, math, and medicine. Because I'm constantly saying this, but cannabis is making every discipline sexy again. You pretty much talk about it across the board. And there's an opportunity for us to start a little bit earlier before people get to the industry. How about at the dual curriculum or K through 12? Um, My son, I homeschooled him, and um, in this journey, right before he got to the point where now he's almost 18, I definitely have been very open about being a patient. He sees cannabis very differently than his friends, certainly.
0: Um well, and- my kids. I, I, I will say, I agree with you. I've been very open about my use and the reason for it. And they approach it as a medicine also. So yeah.
1: Yeah, no. I, and I think that that's what we need to do with our kids. And that's what you know, chem is really about. It's about starting from what we feel like is, you know, the root, which is re-educating. Um, and we're doing so in partnership. It's a White House, actually, White House supported project with the White House Initiative on HBCU, and we see HBCUs as a perfect impact partner because slaves used to grow hemp. A lot of the land they own um, now underutilized and could be utilized for hemp. And many of them already have licenses, state licenses, that they're allowing to be piggyback or utilized by private Companies, but not really learning themselves about cultivation and operations. Um, it's it's all on the back end, um, and so we're hoping to change that by getting them to be first in class R and D operators through our efforts mm-hmm. and projects.
0: What do you think it's going to take to finally make some progress on the federal legalization front? And and I don't I don't want to make progress on federal decriminalization because there's no criminal. There should be no criminal period involved with the word cannabis uh you know so i've been i'm uh, against this whole idea of decriminalization because then you still tell me i'm a criminal just from medicating myself but you won't say that about people who take tamoxifen or people who take other drugs that are plant based drugs so what do you think it's going to take on the federal side a, a new administration so funny because we just got one. Right.
1: And to your point, one that was supposed to be at least a little bit more understanding.
0: Um, I honestly, but, you know, but I I, I would say that, you know, anybody who believed that knew that they were sold a bill of goods when you have a, the, the guy who's in the lead position saying it's still a gateway drug. Come One on, on, thousand percent. Okay, you know, <laughs> I've been saying
1: that from the beginning. It was a yeah, very, very yeah. difficult time for me, but you make the choice you have to make. But I do think that that might actually be in our best interest. I have met with several federal agencies as a regulator, being brought in on the the Schumer-Wyden and Booker bill, and um, and the Moore Act. Uh, you know, I think that we have a lot of marketing language, but the law itself isn't where it needs to be yet. Um, It's not equitable and it's still being driven by this, you know, tobacco, alcohol light. And I find that's going to be problematic from the door um, that we're taking statute. So I actually think we need more time. We need more education for lawmakers um, and the the, the federal regulators. They don't know anything about cannabis. FDA is messing up. CBD, like royally, Um, the DEA still spends millions on eradication and suppression of marijuana. Like that's in their budget every year. So we need those things to go away first. And we need uh, a mindset shift within these uh, agencies that are meant to oversee it. I don't trust them to oversee
0: it. I don't think that that mindset, uh, uh, that shift in, in the mind's gonna happen until some of these regulators You know retire and get out of the way (laughs) i i I think that you know um we have groups of people who are anti that just the same way as we have anti-vaxxers right now Mm -hmm. they're going to be anti-cannabis no matter what you tell them but i still believe that this industry needs to do itself a service in trying its best to educate the consumer Mm -hmm. you know i mean think about it for a second if we go back to looking at any other thing that actually got federal approval, look at the uh, gay marriage. We educated the masses, whether we like it or not, whether you think about it in the right, the, I know this is like two entirely di, uh, dipole things. However, it took a good 10 years to educate America that not under every streetlight is there some person trying to turn your child gay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the LGBTQ plus community did a lot of work. They, a lot of suffering, but they did a lot of work to make you understand that this is something that they're born with. Mm -hmm. Educated you about that first. They had people come forward and, and as living examples, prove the fact that they were who they had been since they were children and they educated America and then the rest of America fell into it. when we had got past what 35, 32 states, mm-hmm. the rest of America said it's legal. Forget about it. Okay. We look at things like that in the past, where you know, when states after states after state after state jumps aboard a legislative process, we have 35 states in the District of Columbia right now that have some form of legal cannabis. the the other 15 should have to just roll over and play dead (laughs) yet because we haven't educated them to make them understand how necessary this is. And we look at what's happened during COVID, you know, almost every state that had a medical program, you know, considered it a essential service. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's that essential, damn it, then come on now the rest of the country should look at it the same way. Right.
1: Well, yeah, um, if they, of course, are thinking about it essential for uh, medicine, as opposed to, I think, grouping it in a couple states, like in Oregon, where, you know, alcohol was also deemed it. It was like, oh, well, we're helping make sure that there's enough coping mechanisms out there. Um, and I don't think of my cannabis use as a coping mechanism, no matter when I'm using it, whether it's super lemon haze for when my mom passed. And I, I needed that up, uplifting um, uh, uh Uh, profile, or whether I'm dealing with uh, feeling like a bear is squeezing me uh, to my death, I I am caring for myself. So it's just that mindset shift. And you're right, it isn't going to happen Uh, without us talking to consumers. And I take it back to my experience. Uh, You know, these don't really require federal changes, although the hair stuff is actually starting to see legal changes. But the natural hair space is one where we went from 80% of women of color perming their hair, doing a very specific thing to make their their pre- presentation of themselves a certain way and yeah we had to educate consumers on how to care for your hair before you could open a whole like natural hair selection you know they're gonna shop if they don't understand what's going on and we let consumers actually drive that too um, whether it's influencers and the like and I think right now what's driving cannabis are influencers that are still tying into sort of the stereotypical and I'm I'm not bad like I'm not against that I'm for the culture I'm still from Brooklyn but I'm for the as well, And I don't think they're mutually exclusive.
0: Right. And I think it's again, that's where this industry can do itself a service and try yes. its best to get out and educate the masses. I mean, that's that's where I think the, the until we do that, you know, uh, what do you think it's going to take or what do you think? Uh, what do you see the industry looking like in the next one to five years?
1: Well, I definitely think if things like the Safe Banking Act, which I uh, do not support, I do not support freeing the money before we free the people. If things like that get passed as a Band-Aid, you know, cannabis industry is going to look like what retail looks like, which is, um, or even cable, uh, it's just a a bunch of conglomerates, largely monopolies or oligopolies. It it isn't going to look like uh, what we need when we're talking about curating specific formulas for ourselves, um, I think you start to get into the one size fits all. And our endocannabinoid system is not one size fits all, um, and that's the, the you know the biggest challenge I have right now. When I see Amazon outwardly supporting a legislation, um, putting money behind lobbying, um, this is not a you know a, a small company. It's almost a four hundred billion dollar company. And I think the cannabis space, even the big cannabis companies, they're confusing their millions for billions. Um, having worked at Target, like I know what the process is when they're coming in for domination, at all of Walmart, Target. Unilever, Amazon, they've all been studying this. I've been writing white papers, so I know. And I think that we should be very mindful of how quickly this will become a big business and you know, industry. Um, so I'm worried about that. That could be a year or two years from now with the Safe Act kind of passing. If 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 I had it my way, we will have us continue to see bills come to the, the forefront at the federal level, but they will not probably be there until we get at least one or two models at the state level. We thought New York might be one, um, you know, maybe New Jersey, but that show that we can have a diverse uh, approach to the, the building of the market itself. Um, and Oh, by the way, center patients
0: too. Right. I'm, I'm involved in uh, the New uh, complete disclosure. I'm involved in New Jersey. I signed a contract with a the company there. I'm re- i going to I was I I've, I've been in and out of the business multiple times, over the course of like the last 12 years, I had to deal with uh, Cura for a while until uh, that kind of went south. And so I ended that deal and I just signed on with a company out of New Jersey that, uh, to get my CBD products back in the marketplace. And again, my CBD products are CBD products that are not just an isolate of CBD. Mm-hmm. Is These are CBD with terpenes. And I'm also looking at some other botanicals that I've been talking about this for the last six or seven years. i finally found a couple of companies who are trying to do this. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, a mixture of, of cannabinoids and adaptogens that would work extremely well for people who are having issues. And so I'm working, getting those formulated and getting out there. Anything else you want to add? Um,
1: Well, one, thank you again for just leading the way on the conversation. I mean, I felt like a patient refugee for so long, and I've appreciated your uh, voice in the space, just to say that outright. Mm -hmm. And two, you know, some people, I feel like we can educate ourselves as well. And so I think that sometimes um, the internet can be bad and good, but we actually have a lot of much better information. So feel free to start to search. Um, I'm still uh, able to be found on theweedhead.com. I picked that because I knew it would be a high search and I wanted to change what a weedhead looked like for someone um, who oh. might be interested in the space. And um, and I think the last thing I'll say is that we. I really do believe that we... Are just at the beginning of trying to figure out how cannabis can be used as a tool to undo the systemic racism that the criminalization has done and has helped perpetuate, but also to drive us towards a more equitable um, circumstance, not just here, but abroad.
0: Excellent. Tashida Dawson, thank you so much for being a part of Lesbi Baltimore Motel today. I know that our viewers are going to be really psyched to see if they want to reach out to you and get you one more time, tell them where to go.
1: Uh, theweedhead.com, or you can find me on at Dashita Dawson on Instagram and or Twitter.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.